71 million. That's the number of people the pandemic is forecast to push back into extreme poverty this year. And for context, the population of the UK is just under 67 million. Many of these people work in the informal economy, and they've already suffered a 60% drop in their incomes in the early months of the coronavirus pandemic. Meanwhile, a collapse in the global tourism industry has put 1.6 billion workers at risk of losing their jobs. And as we continue to fight COVID-19, there has been a recognition of the key roles of healthcare and other essential workers in this. In fact, we can expect the biggest increase in global unemployment since World War II. At the same time, the crisis poses a serious threat to the occupational safety and health of workers and may increase the risk of child labour. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland, and you're listening to Fundamentals, an equity-focused podcast on the Federated Hermes podcast channel. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development was launched in 2015. It aimed to end poverty and set the world on a path of peace, prosperity and opportunity for all on a healthy planet. How has it fared? According to the SDG report 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic, progress remained uneven and we were not on track to meet the goals by 2030. The pandemic and its attendant lockdowns have had a devastating impact on much of this progress. And decent work, SDG 8, has been particularly affected. Before we delve into SDG 8 in more detail, though, it's useful at this point to explain that by their nature, many of the SDGs are interconnected. There is significant overlap between SDG 8 and other goals, such as SDG 1, No Poverty, which has as a goal to end poverty in all its forms everywhere. SDG 2, Zero Hunger, where the goal is to end hunger and achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture and SDG 4, which is the goal of providing a quality education and lifelong opportunities for all. So now let's explore how companies are tackling the challenge to provide decent work to their employees, whether the topic has been unfortunately missing from the ESG engagement agenda, and how COVID-19 has accelerated the importance of elevating this issue. Since the inception of the Federated Hermes SDG engagement equity capability, we've been engaging on the issue of decent work. I spoke to Will Pomroy, the lead engager of SDG Engagement Equity, and I began by asking him about the attention given to SDG 8 and why he believes it is an important topic to engage on. Since the the inception of the Federated Hermes SDG Engagement Equity capability a few years ago now, we very much put SDG 8 and decent work front and centre of our engagement efforts. And I think it's fair to say with the COVID pandemic this year, that those topics have very much become even more front and centre of those conversations we're having with companies. I suppose that's for, for a few particular reasons. One, you know, the social agenda is people and the sustainable development goals in our view are really talking to, to people's lives, the, the poverty alleviation agenda. And I think that's where employment and the, the kind of shareholder corporate dialogue really comes to a, a convergence. It's also, in, in my view, I think what the, the topic or the agenda that's been missing in large part from the ESG agenda over the past um, decade or two of its evolution. Um, and I think that's that's rather disappointing because we all work, we, we all can relate to, I guess, the real lived experience of, of that um, employer-employee relationship. And again, just to bring it to um, 2020 and the COVID pandemic that we're all going through, you know, companies are really now having to make very important decisions 
about how they manage their human capital through this pandemic. That obviously talks to their responsibilities to their employees, as well as their customers and their shareholders. But that those decisions they're making towards their employee base is being watched very closely by the public, the media, politicians, and obviously by the customer base as well. So I think those decisions that companies are making today are going to have profound long-run impacts on their brand and reputation going forward. And I think those companies that are more long-term in their thinking will be able to um, invest today in their workforce, both in terms of who they're employing and how they're employing those employees, so they are better situated to come out the other side as a stronger and more robust business and therefore capitalise on the back of it, while also having a, a beneficial social impact at the same time. So there's a, lots of opportunity in the, in the social and human capital agenda to have a good impact on society and also to, to have um, to, to bring forward initiatives that are good for business. So it's, it's a real win-win opportunity, we think. For us as investors, we, we think it's very important to understand the impact that different labour practices have on business models and employees when assessing the long-term sustainability of the enterprises. In essence, we think employees are often the public face of a company and indeed they're the lens through which corporate culture can ultimately be judged. I used to contend that we spend more time with our colleagues at work than we do with our families at home. Sadly, that truism this year has probably been um, altered somewhat, but I think the premise still stands that work and our relationship with our employer and our colleagues is critical to our economic, physical and mental well-being. And ultimately, it's actually good for the sustainable success of businesses too. So we've been engaging for quite some time now with companies around those issues of who companies employ and how they employ. So that those issues encapsulate pay, benefits and the business model itself. And I think those issues now are, are really um, topical, interesting, and I think really do speak to both sustainable development and sustainable business success. And I'd like to just go back to some of the numbers first before we look at what has changed since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. We've spoken before in this podcast about just how interconnected the goals are and how the goal of decent work can touch on the first goal being no poverty, ending poverty, especially in emerging markets. Work is obviously essential and key to that. And the second SDG, which is zero hunger. And obviously, poverty is very much related to that. Can you give us some of the statistics around how many jobs have been lost? What progress is now being unwound in terms of poverty alleviation? And do you think that this is being felt equally across all genders? Great. That's a fantastic question, Ethan. And yes, I think in its simplest terms, it's perhaps quite jarring as we record this, this podcast in October, you know, that stock markets are, are up year to date, while the number of jobless are continuing to escalate. So I think the ILO are currently estimating that about 400 million jobs will be lost during the course of the, the pandemic. That's quite a sizable number. And to your point, absolutely, the impact of those job losses is, is not equally felt, as indeed the pandemic is not being equally felt. So for the first time since, I think I'm right in saying 1998, progress on poverty alleviation has not just paused, but has gone backwards during 2020, as more people fall back into both absolute and relative poverty. And it's, it's a developed market issue as well as an, an emerging market issue, but it, it's certainly fair to say that the, the largest proportion of those workers that are falling out of employment are typically in developing markets and in the more informal parts of the economy. But even within developing markets, it's not equally felt between men and women, perhaps unsurprisingly. Once again, it's women that are being hit hardest. And one of the bits of research that I think really struck home are that the scale of that um, inequality was that a piece of research I was reading recently was suggested of the the one million workers in the UK who are most most at high risk from from COVID, um, and 
that that's looking at their kind of result of their proximity to other workers. So you know, working closely with, with other people, typically in the, in the sort of service sector economy. So thinking about what that, those 1 million workers who are most at high risk and who are being paid poverty wages, 98% of those are women. So it's a really disproportionately being felt by the, the female working population. And the pandemic, I think, ultimately really brings to the surface the precarious and undervalued nature of many of those um, vulnerable, hard-hit um, employment groups. So again, research identifies that simply put, the poorer you are, so moving down the pay brackets, the higher risk you are to, to COVID. Um, so essentially, the less you get paid, the more at risk you are. And I guess the most at risk in terms of the the kind of latest employment trends would be not just women, but also gig workers, i.e. those who are um, more precarious, have the less have less formal relationships between the employer and the employee. But through the, the last six months, it's perhaps in many cases those precise workers who we, working at home in our fairly comfortable existences, have been most reliant upon. So, so I'd like to think that coming out the back of this, this crisis, there will be a, a review of that relationship between the employer and, and employee, and the more casual nature of some of those employer-employee relationships well, may, may well become even more unsustainable than they were perhaps were seen to be coming into the crisis. Let's focus on the crisis response now. What are companies doing who are behaving in an exemplary fashion? And how about the companies who may not be behaving in such an exemplary fashion? What are the companies doing who are going above and beyond? So I think the, the simple answer is it's a, it's a fairly mixed bag. But I, I think on the whole, actually, most companies have tried to go about this in the right way. Um, it's, a, I guess, a truism and stating the obvious that this is an entirely unprecedented situation and therefore all companies are grappling with what the, the crisis means both for them as, as a business but also operationally in terms of their relationships with their employer employees rather and how they operate in a covid safe environment but i guess the best companies have been those who have been as open and transparent about these difficulties as can possibly be the case so those that have that have communicated with their employee base in advance of any changes that are being made to the, the the normal working conditions. And certainly for those employers who have had to, unfortunately, furlough quite a large number of their employees, I think most employees have recognised that that's, that's probably unavoidable given the um, the evaporation of, of cash flow in many cases. But again, it's the way that those furloughs have been handled. Have they been handled in a sensitive fashion? Have employers gone out of their way to try and minimise the disruption on, on their employee base? Have they sought to... Um, structure the furlough so that the people can take paid leave and unpaid leave in advance before being um, put onto furlough? Are they being um, offered opportunities to come back in a in a staggered fashion so that you're, you're treating the employee base as equitably as you can? Um, and for those workers, frankly, who are who have worked throughout the, the pandemic, I guess that the ultimate um, litmus test for many is, is there extra work, and usually extra work in perhaps some um, unusually risky circumstances, is that being rewarded through, through the paycheck? Are, are they seeing one-off awards being granted? Are they seeing um, a greater likelihood of, of um, recognition and reward further down the track coming through the, the communication with their employers? And I, I guess if pain is being felt, are they seeing that pain being felt across the organisation? So are management teams also both signalling that they're showing the pain and actually are they in reality showing the pain? So are they taking more than just a um, a fig leaf um, pay cut for a few months? But are they, are they actually um, 
taking a, a long-term impact, a long-term cut to their base pay, and also to their, their annual and long-term incentive packages. Because for most for most management teams, as we all know, that the um, fast bulk of their remuneration comes through the, the annual bonus and the long-term incentives. And frankly, they, they typically far outweigh um, the base salary. And it's quite jarring for, for, for most employees to look towards management teams who are still earning multi-million dollar paychecks when they're working above and beyond the normal course of business just to try and keep keep a job in many cases or where they have um, lost employment, either lost lost hours, lost wages, or perhaps um, come about greater mental stress as well, as well as physical stress. So a huge amount of burden being on employees where they've managed to keep their, their, their jobs, but many others, very sadly, have lost their, their jobs through this crisis and are, are looking to the actions of management teams to to be sharing the pain and, and signalling that they, they understand the disruption that many are feeling. And that is so true, Will, about the reputation of companies being on the line and under scrutiny. In just recent months, we've seen a few examples of high-profile companies that are responding to the COVID pandemic by recognising the sacrifices that their employees are making. We've seen many corporates rolling out frontline employee bonuses and premium pay. In some cases where there have been layoffs, these have been coupled with executive pay cuts. We've seen many companies offer enhanced healthcare benefits and additional paid leave. And in some cases, we've seen some companies permanently raise their minimum wage over the next two years in recognition that what they were paying simply wasn't sufficient. We've also seen some examples of CEOs donating their salaries to healthcare workers for the next six months. And this is, of course, a time that has very rightly shone a light on the essential work being done by workers such as doctors, nurses, grocery store workers, logistics workers and truck drivers. Do you think that there is now more recognition of the value of this work and the need for it to be properly remunerated? And the customers and investors are no longer willing to tolerate, perhaps, overly cheap labour and exploitative conditions. I'd like to think so. I guess it would be an interesting question to reflect upon 12 months further on from now. Um, I think there's only a few, I guess, a few challenges that, that are clearly being played out in the public and, and companies are therefore grappling with today. Um, one absolutely is, is around that, that, that um, calculation of value and whether those frontline workers in particular are being adequately valued both in a monetary and a non-monetary sense. Uh, it's interesting, I was looking the other day at some research from PwC a few years back, I think 2017, if I remember rightly, which indicated about a third of workers feel that companies are not delivering the principles of fairness they deem important. And that's a, a fairness in terms of you know the, the paycheck they receive, but also kind of the equitable relationship between them and their employer. I think the, the challenge, unfortunately, is that for, for many businesses and many business models, they've been reliant for a long time, as you alluded to in your question, Ethan, on being able to, to pay a a below living wage um, salary to their workers, or in many cases, been reliant upon uh, suppliers and workers further up the supply chain, who again, are not being afforded a dignified life. So I think, I think there are many value chains that are perhaps ultimately unsustainable, unless we, both as a public, um, are willing to pay up to ensure that value chains are more sustainable and, and affording dignified life for all. And ultimately, whether businesses recognise that their business success cannot be built on the back of granting wages and benefits to workers that it ultimately are, are just not um, equitable for the work that they're putting in. And I think one example would be a, a company within our, our portfolio that is a, a concessions caterer. So very reliant on, on low-skill, low-pay work, but has for some time been thinking about how can it offer contracts to, to those who are tendering for their, their business 
that puts some of the responsibility actually back on um, the larger, in this case, airports and railway stations and other parties to say, look, we, we can provide the service to you with a living wage offering, or perhaps it might be a an offering that is um, price-focused alone. But you, you need to ultimately make the decision of whether you want the whole value chain to be a, a living wage value chain or whether you are focused purely on, on the cost centre. If it's just on the cost, I think, unfortunately, it's the workers that are being too often squeezed out. And I suspect coming out of the back of this pandemic, politicians and policymakers may begin to think about making interventions in, in that direction. I think we're also seeing evidence now that certain employers have recognised the importance of their employees earning what is essentially a living wage. We've seen an example of the head of a, a fintech company in the US who has taken a $1 million pay cut of his own in order that he can pay all his employees a living wage. And how he defined a living wage, I thought was quite interesting because he actually went into the field and did some research himself as to what is the minimum amount his employees need to earn to be happy. And he defined happiness with some basically attending to some basic needs. And he ended up paying everyone a minimum wage that was significantly more than might be deemed a minimum wage in other industries. That's just one example, but we've seen several business leaders have substantially increased the minimum wage for their employees, citing both a moral imperative and a business case for doing that on the basis that if they increase the minimum wage for their employees, their employees are likely to be happier, more loyal, resulting in lower turnover, as a result of which the business would have um, a more sustainable future. So what has changed since the crisis caused by COVID-19? Obviously, many companies are now overwhelmed by the stresses of simply keeping the lights on. Do these things like attention to providing decent work get less attention now and maybe get put on the back burner as other issues that are more pressing come to the fore? Are you worried that as a result of the crisis, there will be less emphasis put on these initiatives and that they are not getting the attention perhaps that they deserve? Great question, Ethan. I think my experience would be that the, the best companies are not relaxing their efforts on DNI simply because of the, the sudden loosening of the labour market or indeed the, the plethora of other issues they're, they're now grappling with. Indeed, the best are continuing to ensure that they are sourcing from the maximum available pools of talent and identifying pools of talent which are often ignored. So the need to address a lack of racial diversity has clearly grown in prominence in, in more recent times. And it's right that companies do make sincere efforts to represent the communities in which they're based. This is important for many reasons, not least ensuring that they are part of the fabric of the communities in which they're situated. Um, you can look at a country level in countries like Japan, where they're, they're a country that have been very much, where they've got a very aging workforce and a history of underemployment of their female population. For them, that the need is only increasing for Japanese companies to be bolder in, the, bolder in their efforts to recruit, attract, and obviously ultimately to promote the female workers within their, their nation and indeed within their company to improve their productivity levels. But actually beyond race and gender, um, there are opportunities to provide disadvantaged populations with former employment. And this offers one of the most impactful routes to, to meeting the global goals, as well as solving some of the challenges that businesses face. So as well as the immediate benefit of a reliable income and the ability to acquire a career that helps the individuals, their families and their communities avoid long-term poverty traps, it also provides companies with an opportunity to tap into a, a talent pool that is too often not considered because it, it does require a bit more upfront investment from the company. But while in the immediacy that the labour market has, has loosened and businesses can benefit longer term, in our view, from thinking more magically about both jobs and the people who fill them. They can benefit from tapping into these underutilised pools of talent 
And ultimately, that can deliver them the high-skilled, easily trained people who will actually value that job, op- op- job opportunity more than some others. And interestingly, the greater w- remote working that the, the great lockdown experiment has, has kind of imposed on most of us actually provides companies with the opportunity to widen the radius, radius for their searches and also potentially caters for the greater flexibility that's needed by working parents, mums in particular, as well as older, per- older workers or persons with disabilities or, or other populations too. And, and I think there are lots of good examples of good practice that, that, that's out there today, whether that's global coffee chains who have previously committed to provide employment opportunities to um, 100,000 younger people or indeed 10,000 refugees by a couple of years' time. Or indeed, that there are companies within our Federated Hermes SDG engagement equity portfolio who, in recognition of their high fixed labour cost business models, are investing in um, HR practices at a national level where they partner up with, with NGOs and, and other third parties to bring in employment from what are typically deprived communities, therefore solving a social need while also solving the need, the need they have for engaged and motivated workers. And Will, you spend a lot of time in the trenches engaging with companies. Can you give us some specific example of how you have engaged with companies and how you are seeing change? Do you see a causal link also between this engagement and performance of the company and ultimately better outcomes for investors? Well, that's the the ultimate question, really, Ethan. So so thank you for asking. Um, In terms of the, the issues that we engage on, I'd like to think it spans the the full spectrum of topics from who companies are employing to how they're employing those individuals. And, and ultimately, we're trying to think through the challenges that businesses are facing out to, as well as some of the challenges that society is grappling with at the same time. But, but in terms of the, the current context and the, the implications of the, the COVID um, fallout on, on wider economy and therefore on businesses in particular, you know, we're very conscious that as, as companies navigate the hits of their cash flow and feel the pressure to cut expenses, to meet earnings targets, etc., we are hopeful that the best in, best employers ensure the their employees don't bear the brunt of the cash constraints and the um, pullback and expenses that they're, they're ultimately putting into place. That there is a lot of evidence that demonstrates that those companies that invest in their workers, whether that's through increased wages or at least providing a a decent and dignified wage, whether that's investing in training and development of their workers, or thinking more magically about the the types of benefits they're providing to frontline staff that ultimately those investments and that approach to caring about the workforce does ultimately get um, recognised in improved workforce productivity, which ultimately it manifests in improved sales and improved earnings for the business. That, that comes through in reduced turnover costs, but also in terms of the way that those employees interact with the customer base and therefore ultimately improved customer satisfaction from the end customer. So while in many cases job losses are going to be unavoidable in this current context, there's equally a lot of evidence to suggest that the costs of firing and then hiring over the medium term quite often outweigh the immediate costs that are saved as a result of that um, redundancy programme. That those costs balance out, you you have the the explicit severance costs and you have the explicit hiring costs, but there's also the indirect losses that's associated with the lost productivity of the work, workers that have gone, and indeed the diminished morale of those workers that are still around. So to the extent that companies can be flexible and accommodate um, the retention of their workers today and continue to invest in, in particular, you know, the broader employee benefit proposition, 
those would be the those would be the companies that, that project forward a few years that will have a more stable workforce and therefore a more engaged and productive workforce too. We've seen in the past the impacts on some companies which do look to save costs in the near term by squeezing those pay and benefits. And that does tend to result in, in diminished morale, as I said, and ultimately reduced productivity. And then to resolve those negative consequences, those same companies, as indeed we have examples in some of the strategies that I work on, the companies have to go above and beyond, not just the reinstatement of previous benefits, but actually uplifting those um, salaries and those um, pension benefits, which ultimately results in an increased cost for the business, um, which more than outweighs, as I suggested before, the kind of immediate cost savings um, they appreciated at the time. And indeed, some of the companies we've been engaging with would suggest that the cost of turnover, to quote one company, is an enormous amount of an enormous amount of money, and indeed an enormous amount of money that can be saved, um, and it can actually result in improved performance if the company thinks longer term and invests in its workforce as a a long term asset that can be improved upon. And have you seen really focused winning solutions during this time of remote work? What is best practice in your view? I think a recurring message from those companies we're engaging with is that the, I suppose the personal skills of management have drastically changed as a result of this new way of working and the, the experiences many of us have been through in the past few months. So I think one of the, the key lessons is perhaps that there's a much greater need for empathy for management now and perhaps less need for the, the typical leader CEO characteristics of the past. And I think that speaks to a few of your points even about there being a greater need to think about the the, imp- the mental well-being of employees as well as the, the economic and physical that the physical perhaps speaks most directly to the, I guess, COVID-secure workplaces that, that many um, employers have put in place. So I, th- I think one of the challenges for that mental well-being piece is the co- connectivity challenge that, that many employers are now grappling with. So we're all scattered, uh, and that, that remote scattering has advantages in terms of employers can now broaden the radius of, of the areas from which they are recruiting, both in terms of um, direct proximity to the the, um, the offices, but also in terms of the, the diversity characteristics we spoke about earlier. But it also means that the employees they're, they're hiring are clearly feeling or have or at risk of feeling more disconnected from their employer and their workplace, but also more disconnected from their colleagues too. So there has been a concrete investment by companies in trying to think through how they can bring employees together through um, a whole range of different social um, social interactivity apps, etc., but I think the, the challenge is one that hasn't really been answered by many, not least because I think for most companies, they don't quite know how long this new normal um, will um, will continue. And frankly, whether it will be ultimately a new normal or just a temporary blip in the, the more typical employer-employee relationship. I expect it, it will to some degree be a new normal for many. And therefore, that, that recognition that we that management teams need to be more empathetic and that more investments need to be made in supporting the mental well-being of employees, uh, employees rather, will be something that will be a, um, a recurring issue for us all to grapple with as we look ahead to 2021. There's also an additional perspective on what it really means to have decent work and how this ties to the goal of lifelong learning. In our US team, Diana Glassman, Director Engagement EOS at Federated Hermes, is seeing increasing overlap between SDG 8 and SDG 4, which is the goal of providing inclusive and equitable quality education. We've talked here about the intersection of SDG 8 with so many of the other SDGs, but I know that you, Diana, are particularly focused on the overlap that it has with SDG 4, which focuses on a goal of delivering a quality education to all. One might say that companies are employers, not educators, 
What role should and do companies play in the education of their workforce? And let's think about it for a second. Companies have constantly and always provided formal and informal training opportunities, on-the-job learning, mentorship development programs. They've sent people around the world. Uh, and this is these are just examples of a broadly defined construct of education. Now, let's examine SDG 4 for a moment. Quality education. Ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. We often forget about that second half of the sentence. Um, and if you look at some of the SDG 4 targets and indicators, there are about 10 of them. I would argue that private sector has and employees have, employers have a role to play in all of them, but let's just focus on two of them. Target 4.4, substantially increase the number of youth and adults who have relevant skills, including technical and vocational skills for employment, DC jobs, and entrepreneurship. Now, who better to teach these sorts of skills, and who in fact does teach these sorts of skills than the private sector um, via on-the-job training, formal and informal courses? And note indicator 4.4.1, the proportion of youth and adults with information and communications technology skills. And who better, and today is an example of companies that um, to teach and interact with IT and provide these necessary skills than and employers. Um, and another, uh, another target, ensure equal access for all women and men to affordable and quality technical, vocational, and tertiary education, including university. And the indicator focuses on the proportion of youth and adults in formal and non-formal education and training in the previous 12 months. So this, this is not just in schools. Um, and in fact, I might argue that the best schools these days are in fact employers and companies and that they teach us a whole range of skills that we need to um, survive, thrive and contribute to, um, to the world at large. Given the recent massive changes that have been wrought in the workforce and workplace post-COVID, what shifts are you seeing in this area? Are employers more attentive now of the need to retrain employees? I'd like to take you back right now for a moment to Decent Work and Economic Growth, SDG 8. Um, promote sustained, inclusive, and sustained economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. And the target 8.6 is to reduce the proportion of youth not in employment, education, or training. And the indicator focuses on the proportion of youth aged 15 to 24 years old not in education, employment, and training. I think one of the things that we've seen as a result of recent developments is a notion that we need to increase the pipeline of recruitment candidates who come into the company. Uh, what you're seeing all over the place, um, sort of either formally or informally, with or without sort of a plan, is companies reaching deeper into the pipeline, meaning investing in the equivalent of high school and vocational training programs, apprentice programs. We're looking at that here at Federated Hermes International. We're looking at apprentice programs. So going deeper into the pool um, and earlier uh, into the pool in order to secure the talent that we need to bring into the workforce and then over time promote them. And because part of the goal of engagement is to ultimately achieve better outcomes for investors, how does better attention to SDG 8 and maybe weaving in SDG 4 ultimately translate into better returns in your view? 
so from an academic perspective, I will just point you to um, a book called Grow the Pie by Alex Edmond, um, indicating that investing in employees increases the overall pie, which is good for investors as opposed to the extent of expenditure. So there's a notion first that this, ex this is good for everyone. Um, and yeah, and, and he, he, some of the, this is the data that he looked at, 100 best companies to work for in America outperformed over 28 year peers by two to 3.3.8% over the 1984 to 2011 or 89 to 184% cumulative. So those are some of the academic research out there. Um, but I'll, I'll point to some of the own, put my own writings and the work that I've done. If you think about it from a discounted cash flow perspective, um, what are the sorts of impacts on cash flows and uh, discount rates that investing in employees and generating the returns create? Well, um, clearly um, lower turnover, um, clearly longer retention, clearly lower recruiting costs. And if you translate that into dollars and cents, that means cash flows straight to the bottom line in early years that can be repeated over time if this is a consistently well-managed company. And that translates into increased cash flow. And if it's some sort of a cultural benefit, that is sustainable relative to the competition. So this is, this is, quality cash flow, early years, going forward into the future. Let's think a little bit about the risk, the, the discount rate, the risks. Well, if you are well managed, you are less likely to suffer from lawsuits, health issues, employee controversies, all those sorts of things that what I would argue increase risk. Um, and I would point to, um, say, the US telco sector, um, where many companies have done very well by their employees and some haven't. And during COVID, for example, and now at least one of those companies that didn't do so well is being sued. Diana has mentioned opportunity employment, in particular for youth. And I was delighted to chat with Nicole Trimble, Managing Director of FSG, a mission-driven consulting firm which helps organizations to find new ways to achieve real results against society's toughest challenges. Nicole leads Talent Rewire at FSG and works with employers and workforce partners that are interested in innovating best practices in hiring, retention, and advancement of populations facing barriers to sustained employment. Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about Talent Rewire? So Talent Rewire is a network of leading employers some global companies, many in the United States, that are seeking to unlock business value through what we call opportunity employment, which is improving the livelihoods of people facing barriers to employment, while importantly generating a return on investment to their companies. So this is good for business, good for people. So what exactly is opportunity employment? And why you say it's good for business and good for people? What are some of the benefits that it can bring? Right. So by opportunity employment, we mean that there's a set of principles and practices, which I can talk more about, that prioritize equity, inclusion, opportunity, and most important, economic mobility for especially the frontline workers within a company um, while generating business value. And you ask, like, what do we mean by business value? And I think one of the things that, that we've seen again and again is that by not investing in a front line or not paying attention to the people who we often consider invisible in, in our organizations, we are losing incredible amount of business value. That front line is material. In the United States, 
the front line of retail, so that front line, those that are checking out customers, um, has such high turnover that there's a $9 billion loss uh, every year because of their because of their turnover. There's incredible cost in having to replace, train, recruit that front line. And so a lot of what we focus on is how do we stabilize the front line so they stay in those jobs? And then how do we advance them so that they become the workforce of the future instead of this constant revolving door? And can you give us some examples of companies who have adopted this approach? What have they done and how have their outcomes improved? Right, so uh, like a Fortune 100 company that, that I'll give an example of, it's a, a food manufacturing company. And so in food manufacturing, you often have frontline folks who um, are have a high school education or less, and many times have, have you know maybe less stable home environments or less stable environments. A lot of immigrants and refugees that, that work in this company, and so they decided to invest in this front line, and they decided that they would have training for the front line in English as a second language, in in citizenship classes, in financial literacy classes, um, and in high school equivalency classes. And by doing this, they found out that they had a 123% return on investment based on increased productivity, decreased absenteeism and and stabilization meaning that that people weren't weren't quitting they were they were coming to work they were staying in their jobs and they were advancing and so you know, often paying people to go to trainings that might not seem relevant or to be trained up in a way uh, that, that might not seem like it's directly related to the job has, has been seen as a cost. But what this company is seeing is it's actually, it, it's actually seen as an investment and it's an investment that's really paying off for them. Um, another example I'll give is a, is, is a bank. And so banks traditionally have inflated their degree requirements and what's needed for positions. And so this bank said, like, let, let's look at our positions and let's figure out, well, we really don't need to have this degree inflation in, in our position descriptions. And we should probably start recruiting out of the community colleges, which are the two-year colleges, which they often weren't recruiting out of. They were recruiting out of the four-year colleges. And to add to that, they decided to put a scholarship in place. So for people who came to work at the bank, they would pay their community college tuition, which when they looked at it was just a fraction of their recruiting costs. And they found that by working with the community college and paying for this, this scholarship, that they were able to get a workforce that they would have had to recruit over and over and over again. They got a diverse workforce, a workforce that stayed with them, a workforce that was really interested in different parts of the bank. And it was really about just looking at a different population and looking for people who needed the opportunity versus uh, those that, that looking in places where all of the other banks were looking. And they're having an incredible success in expanding it to other community colleges. That is such an impressive outcome. I also want to move now to talk about automation and some of the changes that are coming about by increased automation. There seems to be a perception, rightly or wrongly, that it is the lower skilled parts of the workforce that are most at risk and most in danger of seeing their jobs replaced by robots. How do you see that evolving and how are companies adapting to the challenges of automation? <laughs> it's absolutely true. So experts are suggesting that 75 million to 375 million people may need to switch 
occupational categories and learn new skills by 2030. I mean, this is this is going to be a sea change. It isn't just the the low skilled workers; it's all of us. Um, I think about how what I would have had to do for data visualization in my job as a consultant, and now um, Tableau and other products can just do that for me. So we we often think that this is just about the low skilled jobs, but it's actually all of our jobs are going through this complete overhaul. With the low skilled jobs where their automation and AI um, can can more readily be be implemented is happening at a breakneck speed. Um, COVID has really increased employers' desire to not rely on humans. Um, and when a, a recent Harvard Business School study was done, it showed that 40% of leaders were accelerating their automation plans because of COVID. And so what that means is so many of these frontline entry-level jobs are going away. It doesn't mean that the net number of jobs is going away. It just means that the lower skill jobs is, uh, will, will, will be replaced. Somebody needs to program the robot. Somebody still needs to work on inventory. Somebody still needs, needs to, to fix the, uh, the automation. But what that means is that employers are going to need to be investing in their front line for those jobs because there are not enough people to fill the higher skilled jobs. And so there, there's going to be a bit of a gap. And we often have said, well, we'll just lay people off and hire new people. Well, those new people don't really exist. So not only are we in an automation shift, we're also in a skills shift right now too. And, and it's really gonna be about the employer stepping in. In addition to all of us having to reskill and really this front line uh, being most at risk of losing their jobs. I think that there's an overlay, especially in the United States, to be thinking about when it comes to equity. So African-Americans in the United States are t at 10% greater risk of job loss due to automation. And that figure jumps to 30% for African-American men without a college degree. And so as we're looking at equity and we're looking at the awakening and the, the, the increased awareness around racial injustices, this is an economic injustice that, that is going to be um, more and more apparent as automation uh, accelerates. I think that on, on the part of automation, the other piece that I think is really important for both companies and investors to be thinking about is what type of investment are employers making in their employees? And so this, this line between government and education and the employer and private business is really blurring. And what type of educational investment is going to be needed for the workforce of the future? And companies that are really thinking about that and investing in that are going are, are going to be much more competitive. Um, the pace of change is as fast as it's ever been and as slow as it will ever be. And because of that, the, what I call the half-life of skills is shrinking. Um, so the skills that you possess today and that we possess today are becoming obsolete faster and faster. And so what are the investments that companies are making to make sure that their employees continue to grow those skills? Um, the, the is, is going to is going to be an incredible differentiator. Um, many people are saying that learning is the new pension. 
that, that that's what's going to keep employees and people working is, is our ability to learn. And it's going to keep employers viable if they're investing in the learning, if it's through supporting college courses or, or, or time, paid time to, to not just be doing typical trainings, but deep learning of new skills that help both the employee and the company be competitive in, in the new landscape. What is the impact that the current COVID crisis has had on opportunity employment? And have you found that employees that engender better engagement in their employees see better outcomes as they go through what must be a crisis time? So COVID has had a disproportionate impact on low-income people, specifically people of color and women. So as many as 40% of people earning $40,000 or less per year had been laid off, right? So it's the lower income people who were most deeply and continue to be most deeply impacted by COVID. And so what, what, we're, what we're learning is that in order for our economy to re- return, we really need to get these people back to work. You know, this iron rule of market economies is that we all do better when we all do better. And so to have such a large percentage of people not working is a problem to our, to our macro economy. Right. And so so we're we're trying to get these people back to work. But many of like we said, many of these jobs are being automated at the same time. What we're seeing is that the companies that really focused on keeping their employees back to work, not only working, but that uh, invested in their employees did better um, financially. And so Just Capital, which which is a a standard setter and assessor, uh, they looked at 22 categories to assess corporate response to COVID. And this included things like dependent care, community relief funds, paid sick leave. And what they found is that the top 25 employers that that invested in their employees, including and especially their frontline employees, saw an almost 8% return in their industries over their, their, their respective other the other employers in their industries, and that the bottom 25% saw almost a 10% underperformance respective to their industries. And so investing in your employees, especially your frontline employees, has a payoff. And in this, in, in this instance, it was a short-term payoff. This was this was quarter over quarter. This wasn't even a long-term investment. And so investing in employees, keeping them safe, keeping them healthy might seem like you know just good business, but what we're showing is that it is a really good business. And I think there are some other examples, too, that we can cite of companies where they have taken a really unorthodox approach to hiring that have seen exponential benefits. An example might be a bakery in New York that defines its hiring criteria as hiring anyone willing to work, no questions asked. This company has saved countless recruiting costs and has seen much limited turnover as a result of some of the employees that they have attracted through this approach. Another example is a clothing store that implemented two-week advance notice of schedules while eliminating the use of tentative shifts that could essentially be cancelled hours before they commenced. This stable scheduling had, again, very evident benefits in terms of increasing the sales at stores that had in place and increased employee well-being where they had reported increased sleep quality and ultimately a better quality of life. So that's all for this episode of Fundamentals. It's clear that the goal of providing decent work is a goal that we should all share. When we look at how work touches our own lives, we can see that it is key to dignity, self-sufficiency and prosperity. Of course, nothing exists in isolation and also decent work can address areas such as poverty, hunger, gender inequality, and it can also empower lifelong learning and education. The COVID crisis has shone a light on many of the inequities in society. 
and in particular, how we value and pay the people who are essential to keeping the machinery running that is essential for our lives. As we look to rebuild from the crisis, there is perhaps a unique opportunity for companies to demonstrate that they invest in what matters. Investing in providing decent work for their employees makes them not just a good corporate citizen, but also a better investment prospect for investors. On that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Fundamentals. I'll be back next month, but in the meantime, if you want to catch up on our previous episodes or don't want to miss upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the Federated Hermes podcast channels, Amplified and Here and Now. You'll find these channels on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Until then, I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at The Firm. Thank you for listening to Fundamentals. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Some of the guests featured on this podcast are not employees of Federated Hermes. The views and opinions expressed by these guests are their own personal views. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.